Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two Kwan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So, quick intro. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Today, we've got a special guest, Eric Wall, the wise wizard of Taproot. And then you've got myself, I'm Hasib, the head hype man of Dragonfly. So, we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Eric, it's good to see you, sir. How are you doing? I heard that you're uh, about to shove off for Bitcoin Miami, which is like the, those who don't know, it's the big premier Bitcoin event that happens every year. Very true. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah. How are you? Um, I, I imagine that this right now is basically ordinal season, so it's your time to shine. What's, what's the vibe over in Bitcoin Miami, given what's happening on chain this time of year? So, you know, I think that this year there's probably going to be a significant clash between the laser eye maxi tribe and sort of the magicians, the wizards. So me and my co-founder Udi were sort of thinking about how can we amplify that situation even more. So what we've been doing with this NFT project that we have is that we, in order to get whitelist in our project, you know, we don't do the usual thing where people are, people are like active in discord or stuff like that. We have a specific thing called the wizard school. So in the wizard school, people do quests like sending a lightning transaction, interacting with the Bitcoin system. And the most recent quest that we launched was to wear a wizard hat to the Bitcoin Miami conference. So take a picture of yourself with a wizard hat. Because I think what's happening right now is that the, uh, the, the sort of existing laser eye tribe, they really blame all this ordinal stuff on the wizards, even though that they were the ones that sort of went developed, deployed, and went to bat for Taproot for years and then didn't find a use case for it for years until someone thought, okay, why don't we just why don't we just treat uh, this upgrade as an arbitrary data blob and just feed any random stuff into the blockchain? And that's where sort of the Taproot wizards came in and said, like, okay, let's do some magic with this with this arbitrary data. So they think that we are destroying the chain, which like I mean they're they're the ones <laughs> that sort of got the upgrade into Bitcoin. Um, so we just, we, we've already been seeing like a lot of animosity from their camp and like there's, there's been tweets that they've made to the effect of like, let's hunt a wizard. If you see one in Miami. So we thought like, let's just, let's just flood the conference with wizards. Let's show them how many we are. Let's make it a part of the wizard school to show up in a, in a wizard hat so that maybe like we'll (laughs) we'll make them feel outnumbered. (laughs) Wait, so what, what exactly do they get if they show up in a wizard hat and take a selfie? They get a, a slightly higher chance at a whitelist for our NFT collection. A slightly higher so chance at a whitelist. So 1% wow. to 2? Okay, that's legit. People do it, man. People, <laughs> you, should, you should see these people. Like, people are crazy about the collection. There's 
no way to buy it. The only way to do it is to like be a part of the community. So there's there's tons of interest. There's already people. There's like I think I've seen maybe like three or four hundred pictures of people putting a picture of putting their wizard hat in their um, in their luggage. So it's already like the hype is already building for that. Okay, so it sounds like this is a Lord of the Rings style conflict going on between like the wizards and the trolls. And I, I, I guess I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to understand like in your understanding, and I know you obviously, you know, Bitcoin Miami, I think is starting tomorrow or today, uh, soon. What percentage of the Bitcoin community would you say is in the troll camp and how much would you say is in the magician camp? Yeah, so there's some pretty interesting data points on this. Oh, sorry, magician wizards. So, no, it's ETH magicians and Bitcoin wizards, right? That's the split. So you're a magician, others are wizards. Got it. So there, there are some pretty interesting data points on. So Bitrefill is a service that uh, you can use to buy gift gift cards with Bitcoin, and it's one of the more popular like Bitcoin maxi companies. Actually, that's one of the things that if you ask a Bitcoiner what can you do with Bitcoin, they'll say, oh, you can buy gift cards uh, on Bitrefill to charge your phone. <laughs> uh, it's hey. so earnest. <laughs> right. So they do uh, track like statistics of who's paying uh, with which wallet, actually. So you can do like fingerprinting and look at the metadata and how it interacts with their web server and try to figure out which wallet is actually uh, connecting to our website and making Bitcoin pay- payments. So they had a conference, I think it was on Pizza Day uh, last year, so May twenty second, May May twenty second is the pizza day. It's the celebration of when Laszlo uh, bought two bit, uh, two pizzas for ten thousand Bitcoin. So there's an event for that, and so he he usually goes there and usually demonstrates some sort of interesting data on like who's using the service. So he did like a raise of hands, like a show of hands, and he asked people like, how many people do you think are using Lightning versus Ethereum or Lightning versus Litecoin? And so one of the interesting data points is that Litecoin is more popular than Lightning. So Litecoin, which is like a cryptocurrency that barely anyone uses. So like some random shitcoin is more popular than Lightning. And then if you go into looking at uh, the Bitcoin payments, uh, he asked, like, what do you think is the most popular wallet here? And so the Bitcoin Maximus, they raised their hand and they said said they they named a bunch of different wallets, like uh, Blockstream Green Wallet, a bunch of different wallets that they like and that they think are popular. Uh, so there were like maybe seven or eight different suggestions. And then in the end, it turned out that the most popular wallet was an, a wallet called Exodus Wallet that no Bitcoin maximalist has ever heard of. Like I hadn't even heard about it either. And that's just because like when you go to the App Store and you search for, search for Bitcoin wallet, Exodus Wallet comes up. And it shows sort of how big the distinction is between the Bitcoin maximalists thinks that they are the Bitcoin community, but there is a huge uh, a user base of Bitcoiners that don't even know that the Bitcoin maximus exists, and they certainly don't use their products. So uh, if you're asking me like what the split is between wizards and what the split is between laser maxis, I think that the main thing to realize is that the biggest Bitcoin user base doesn't have anything to do with maximalism at all. They probably don't even know the about the conflict between wizards or maximalists. And the question is, like, if they are presented with these two, uh, two narratives, where one is like, in order to be a Bitcoiner, you sort of have to be a, a conservative, you sort of have to be anti-vaccine, you sort of have to be anti-climate uh, change, and you sort of have to be thinking about the core nucleus family. There are a bunch of different weird things that have been associated with Bitcoin <laughs> culture that doesn't really have anything to do with, with Bitcoin. 
And then on the other hand, you have sort of the wizards, which is like, fuck it, this is, int- uh, this is uh, magic internet money. We were trying to make uh, Bitcoin fun again. Uh, so the most successful, what, what logo for our sort of tribe is uh, the same logo that was on the, um, the Bitcoin Reddit forum in 2013. There was a picture of a wizard that said, magic internet money, join us. And that was the most successful Reddit ad in sort of history of Reddit ads. People liked that sort of playful idea, the picture of a wizard, magic internet money. Didn't take itself too seriously. So I think that, you know, that sort of message where Bitcoin is like, you know, we're doing magic internet money. Join us. Let's, let's see how it works out. That's a, that's, that's a known, uh, well, uh, working strategy for sort of making the uh, Bitcoin community attract more people. I don't think that sort of the, the laser eye maxi tribe has been successful at any metric at all to bring more people into. There's not uh, hundreds of thousands of people who are like, holy shit, I gotta change my eyes to to, to laser eyes and be very and, and only eat steak and and uh, have a very conservative ideas about politics and science. Like that's not <laughs> that's that's a weird thing. You can do that and look, we're not we're not actually in the business of trying to like eliminate the laser eye tribe. I think that the Bitcoin can have room for many tribes. I just think that the the, the magic, the, the wizard one is probably a more appealing one. We know that it worked in the past. We're trying to bring that back. And sort of the, uh, the taproot, sort of the ordinals uh, upgrade became possible in Bitcoin has given us that wiggle room to create a sort of rift in the cultural divide in Bitcoin. And we're just trying to fuel that, basically. So just to quantify it really quickly, how many official wizard NFTs exist? And how many ordinals in total exist? So a funny thing is that so because we were one of the first ordinals collections, we what we did that was sort of um, unique in a way was that we collaborated with a miner and got that miner, uh, it was Luxor Mining, and we got them to mine a single Bitcoin block uh, that, so usually most Bitcoin blocks are like 2.3 megabytes large or something like that, uh, sometimes even less, like 1.7, 2.3 but if you uh, sort of artificially engineer a block to sort of max out the, the consensus rules for a block, you can create a block that is as big as four megabytes. It had never happened before in Bitcoin history. But we did that and we filled the entire block with a picture of a bald wizard, so sort of a meme about Udi Wertheimer. So we took that original picture of a wizard, we turned it into Udi, and we put sun, sunglasses Wait, on it. Is Udi balding now? He had such a beautiful head of hair. Is that <laughs> what? Yeah, no, he, he is 100% bald. Um, like you, pretty oh. much, yeah. Oh, um, damn. No, 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 I'm joking. No, I'm joking. There's No, there's like an intern. There's a long intern joke about Udi being bald for some reason. People call him bald. I don't know why. But anyway, oh. so he's sort of owning the joke. And so we, we took a picture of a, of a bald wizard <laughs> and we... Uh, took that original meme of magic internet money, join us, and we turned it into magic internet JPEGs, join us. Uh, so that was the inscription number 652. And th- in my opinion, like, I don't know for a fact, but in my opinion, that was such a like a landslide moment for the ordinals hype that it sort of set a trend in the, in the ordinals lure overall so, so that many collections are sort of inspired and based off of like, different wizard concepts. So there are a bunch of different wizardy related ordinals collection that has sort of become a side brand to the whole ordinal ordinal story. But uh, to answer your question more explicitly, so there are two thousand one hundred roughly uh, wizards that are inscribed, and in total, 
Last time I checked, there were 4 million different ordinals, but it could be 5 million or 6 million now because they're just, it just went parabolic very quickly after this. How much did it cost for you to get the miner to fill four megabytes of a bald wizard? So I think we paid uh, around 12 or 14, or in the range of 10 and $15,000 because the, the, um, the, the, the fees in Bitcoin at that time were basically non-existent. Transactions at one Satoshi per virtual byte uh, were getting mined. So there wasn't, like there were some blocks uh, in, uh, that were getting mined. The total fee revenue uh, was $600 for all the transactions in the block. And then we came and said, hey, minus one big wizard, we'll pay you $12,000. And then um, that was, so that was more lucrative for them to do. And, and I've heard that uh, since then, you know, there are, there are uh, people see that as a sort of big marketing opportunity to make an entire block about something special. So it's like Bitcoin is sort of monetizing through ad space <laughs> at the moment. And there are people that are paying now $30,000 per for, for one JPEG to cover an entire block, whereas before it was sort of in the range of $600, $800. So mining revenues for some blocks have gone up like 100x. That's great. I remember there was an Ethereum NFT collection that did something similar, although of course Ethereum blocks not you know not quite as scarce as Bitcoin blocks for obvious reasons. Um, so I want to okay. So so let's let's take a step back. I, I kind of want to get maybe just a little bit of a kind of devil's advocate situation, or maybe actually get you to do that. Can you give us a steel man for the Bitcoin maxi position that uh, it is not wise to have ordinals on Bitcoin? That they're bad for Bitcoin and that they really shouldn't be operating. What do you think is the best form of the argument that maximalists have um, advanced to you? Mm. Well, so the the maximalists haven't really advanced any great arguments, but I can uh, advance. I can come up with a much better argument for them that they should be using that they haven't really figured out yet. Okay, let's hear that. To do that. So I think that I mean the. the the criticism that they're doing right now is the same one. I mean, this debate has been going on, on for ages in Bitcoin. Most people just don't remember it. Uh, it was the same debate uh, around counterparty back in 2014. Uh, we're having the exact same, like I, ha- I have a thread on Twitter where you can see that I go through, like, what are the different sites saying now uh, back in 2014? They're saying the exact same things now. The discussion is around what should the, the Bitcoin blockchain be for? Should it be for Bitcoin transaction data or can there be any meta layer or any arbitrary data? As long as a, as a transaction pays for the fee, is it a valid transaction? And there are a lot of Bitcoiners that feel like, no, uh, Bit- Bitcoin is for Bitcoin transactions. And if you uh, put a bunch of other stuff there, you're sort of squeezing the available space for transactions out by filling it with other non-relevant data. So that's sort of the crux of, of, the, um, uh, of the debate. But what I think is going to happen now, the, the, the biggest problem with all of this, so I'm pro-ordinals, I'm pro this trend, because I think that the one of the major problems that Bitcoin has is that there's not enough demand for its block space. There used to be a lot of demand for Bitcoin block space because people were using Bitcoin to transfer funds between centralized exchanges. So you can sort of think of it that there were not necessarily MEV in Bitcoin, but there were certainly urgency. If you want to transfer funds from Poloniex to BitMEX to, to avoid getting liquidated on uh, BitMEX uh, and you wanted to fill up your collateral, you had to use the Bitcoin chain. That's not the case anymore. People use stablecoins or Ethereum or any other faster chain to transfer funds between exchanges. Uh, there's been now for a long time, uh, since like 2018, there's been uh, just 
the transaction fees has just been going down and you have some of the primary Bitcoin researchers and spokespersons, well, maybe I shouldn't say spokesperson, but like core developers like Peter Todd, that is, has, has been making a serious case for why we need to introduce tail emission, so basically inflation into Bitcoin in order to have a strategy for when the halvings make the block rewards go down, that there's enough of a security budget to secure Bitcoin. And removing the 21 million uh, cap would be like a disaster, a big, uh, huge disaster for the the meme of Bitcoin, the story of story of Bitcoin, the immutableness guarantees. So if there's so actually, let me let me let me interject here because I think this might be a new argument for some people who who don't know what it is that you know Eric Todd and all, oh, sorry uh, Peter Todd and all these other people are worried about. So the the idea for Bitcoin is that uh, Bitcoin right now is secured by mining fees. Those mining fees go down. Uh, in terms of the size of the block reward every four years in Bitcoin. And eventually those mining fees will get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until they basically approach zero in the year like 2100 or something, or I don't know, some time very far in the future. When those block rewards get small enough, then the only revenue that miners will get in exchange for securing the network by doing proof of work is fees. And if those fees are not very much, or if they're very volatile, then basically you're going to get situations where Bitcoin miners uh, are not actually giving very much security to the blockchain. And therefore, uh, Bitcoin is just going to end up being insecure a lot of the time when people aren't willing to pay fees uh, in a given block. And that's very bad because it means that people can't use Bitcoin safely because they'll be worried about double spend attacks or a miner, you know, mining one block and mining another block instead and the hash rate going way down. So that's one of the problems that many people in Bitcoin are worried about. It's a very far future problem. But uh, there's a, there's an argument within Bitcoin. One of the ways to solve this is with just having continual emissions akin to the way Ethereum does. So sorry. Uh, yeah. Eric, I just wanted to define that for the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So that's that's one of the most like, controversial opinions that you can have as a Bitcoiner about the Bitcoin system, that this is a problem. Like just recognizing it, recognizing it as a problem is extremely controversial. You're usually, so even Peter Todd, even though that he's one of the most like respected core developers in Bitcoin, struggles immensely like it's i'm actually surprised that he didn't get like ousted from sort of the bitcoin maximalist camp i really thought that you know had it been anyone else they would not have made it very long in in sort of the bitcoin ecosystem for raising that as a potential problem uh so i think that ordinals are great because they do um now we have like we can monetize we can we can create a security budget just from like ad space basically in bitcoin with these pictures but i think unfortunately it's not going to stop. I, I asked you to steal, man. I asked you to steal, man. The argument yeah, against yeah, I'm Ordinals getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting okay, there. Okay, you're getting there. All right, it's very roundabout. Yeah, very roundabout argument here. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna explain what I think the big problem here is uh, with okay. the ordinals. So I'm excited for the payoff. So what what maybe we can just explain what what Taproot did. That's probably a good idea. Everybody's heard the term Taproot, but most people probably don't know what it even is. Yeah, so Taproot was an upgrade to sort of the signature scheme in Bitcoin to Schnorr signatures, and it also introduced something called Merkleized Abstract Syntax Trees, which are a way to create for for a, a Bitcoin to be able to be spent in a number of different fashions, and you don't have to disclose upfront how the Bitcoin is actually encumbered because sort of the the, the spending script is hidden in a Merkle root, basically, and if you can prove that you have a script that that belongs in the same Merkle root tree, then you are allowed to uh, spend that transaction. So that's that's Taproot. 
that was a very hyped upgrade to the Bitcoin system because people felt that it gave greater scripting capabilities to Bitcoin transactions. And Schnorr signatures themselves are pretty powerful because you can do you can make a multi-signature look like a single signature transaction. So there are efficiency and privacy and also uh, scripting flexibility advantages to Taproot. However, one year after this upgrade was rolled out to uh, the to a cheerleading crowd of Bitcoin maximists who said that Ethereum is now dead because Bitcoin is going to get smart contracts through Taproot. One year after, we don't even have like the, uh, we don't even have a wallet that supports this sort of multi-signature version for Taproot. So there wasn't really any consumer demand for these tiny, tiny, small uh, privacy and, and flexibility upgrades. Um, we had less than one percent adoption of Taproot one year out, but. Um, what Taproot did do, like in order to leverage these new scripting capabilities in Bitcoin, they also relaxed certain scripting limitations and standardness limitations. So without getting too much into the nitty gritty, it made it easier in Bitcoin to sort of, sort of fill out a whole block with one transaction. One transaction containing just one input could fill out a whole block. And it was easier to propagate it in the network because miners, according with this upgrade, miners the standardness rules for transactions. So standardness is a policy by which a transaction is valid in the chain, but not valid to send around to other people. So it's sort of a soft spam filter. That was softened as well. So it made it possible to create a protocol that created bigger transactions uh, that were still uh, in alignment with the standardness rules. Uh, and there was a developer called Casey Rottermore that figured out that he could just use the scripting language of Bitcoin to create a, a branch of the script that wasn't executed. And therefore, because it wasn't ever executed, it didn't trigger any other of these sort of script limitations in Bitcoin. It was just like an OP if, OP, uh, OP false. So it's like the, the statement basically starts with OP false, which means that this, everything that come, comes after here is false. You're, so so when, a, when a miner or a, a Bitcoin node is looking at this transaction data, they don't even validate the rest of the script. So it basically created a form of call data. Like in, in Ethereum, you have call data. It's a raw data blob that you don't execute or you don't do any computation on. By doing this little, he called it an envelope. It's a way to sort of just fill a transaction with transaction data that doesn't really get executed by the system. So uh, by doing that, he was able to fill entire transactions just with JPEG data that didn't have to abide with any to any normal Bitcoin transaction format rules. So he just created a transaction, and inside the transaction, he had this envelope thing, and then he just filled the rest with arbitrary data. None of the standardness uh, uh, limitations got hit. None of the script limitations got hit. So basically... Wait, so is, is, for, for inscriptions, is it actually the metadata... Or sorry, for ordinals, is it actually the metadata? Like the same way it is on Ethereum, where you're pointing to some oh. hash of the image, or are you literally... You're like base sixty four encoding the image or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so we're we we are uh, we are a hundred percent dumping the raw uh, hexamal oh, the data entire from, raw the, image is in from there. the image. I mean that's a, I that's the way that, that, that we do it. Uh, that's just became. I mean that was how the ordinals protocol was designed. Style. Yeah, okay, and cool. and that became sort of a differentiator uh, also because we don't want like you see on OpenSea sometimes collections the the, the images of the collections on the, of the JPEGs change because what they're pointing to is a web2 server somewhere and then someone changes what that thing is pointing to uh, so what we wanted to do to sort of stick true to the bitcoin ethos without upgradability or admin keys or anything like that we just dumped the entire uh, raw data into the transactions themselves 
And so there was one thing that I did uh, that I think... So I wrote a couple of tweets where I highlighted just how cheap the Bitcoin blob space was. And I, together with another guy, I made the inscription number 134, which was a you know these really stupid trump cards? Like Donald Trump has an NFT collection of trump cards. Uh, yeah, they're not stupid. They're popular. Right. Yeah. So I had a couple, uh, as one does. And I... Uh, <laughs> uh, and, okay. And, and, and I think like Robert's also a collector. Right. Uh, I, I have one because it'd be, you know, necessary. Wait, which one do you have? Um, I think he's throwing money in the air. <laughs> it's, like, it's very Uncle Scrooge. That's great. Yeah. So I have a, I have okay, a gold nice. case for Trump NFTs. We can talk about it later. Anyway, so um, I took so one of those Trump cards was 360 kilobytes large, and we put the entire raw data of that image into Bitcoin for just 20 bucks. So the the, the entire network cost for putting a 360 kilobyte image was just 20 dollars. That was, so I did that on uh, January 29th. And after that, you can see how the whole ordinal strength went parabolic from that day and just straight up because people were like, holy shit, $20 to put 400 kilobytes, like four, 400 kilobytes is a big high resolution image. Uh, anyway, so let me get back to my, let me get to the point that I, that I was kind of, uh, trying to make. So uh, arbitrary, so the ordinal system, as it was sort of in, initially conceptualized and conceived, was designed pretty much to put videos, text, images, like any arbitrary data, but sort of the, it was designed sort of for web content, like something that you can display on a website, some voice snippet that you recorded. But the thing is that when you make it this easy to embed arbitrary data into Bitcoin, there are more things that people are going to want to do with that arbitrary block space. So one of the things that people have been doing for the last couple of weeks is they created a meta token protocol. So the BRC20 standard is, it's a semantic, it's just, it, it's a bunch of JSON files that people dump into the Bitcoin chain. And then you have uh, external software that sort of interprets those JSONs and creates now uh, a BRC20 token standard inside of Bitcoin. So you basically have a shitcoin protocol that is now living inside of this arbitrary data space. So, uh, I don't think that people yet can see sort of the danger here, but there are already people that are working on extensions for the BRC20 protocol to add things like, yeah, because now you can now you can create uh, a shitcoin inside of Bitcoin. It's not that new. I mean, you have, you have the Omni layer, for example, did that in the past. But uh, now that there's been sort of a huge, tremendous interest in these and these BRC20 tokens have had tremendous market demand and they're worth like hundreds of millions of dollars and there are people that are minting them. Uh, what's the next steps for these tokens? Are they just going to be dummy tokens that you can't do anything with? No, people are going to want to start trading those. They wanna, they're going to want to start trading those on automated market makers. They want to get start to get yield on those tokens. They want to use them in governance systems. They want to use them in the same way that people use any token in DeFi. So it, uh, this is your bear case. This is why it's bad. To yeah, have yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so why, getting, why is it bad? I'm getting there. So, <laughs> um, so what we're gonna what, what's gonna happen is that there's gonna be MEV on Bitcoin. What was the reason that eighty uh, percent of all the block producers in Ethereum were uh, censoring transactions due to OFAC regulation in Ethereum? What was the main root? What was the main source of that problem? 
MEV was the main source of that problem. Because of MEV, we had to uh, create a system like Flashbots in order to democratize staking yields, basically, in the system. So uh, it, we had we created a different type of pipeline for transaction uh, propagation and cons- uh, transaction creation in Ethereum in order to make sure that all different validators in the system had sort of access to high yielding uh, block creation. But that did also create centralized pipelines inside the system so that when OFAC regulation came in, they had a a specific entry point to sort of latch onto. And that was the reason why we reached 80% uh, centralization in Ethereum. So yeah, it's it's down a lot from there for what it's worth. I think Flashbots is only like twenty five percent, and you guys don't have to build Flashbots. You can just spike yeah, the fees forever um, and and pay your miners that way. Like I don't think it's fair to say MEV causes uh, you know OFAC censorship. No, no. Look, well, if we don't do anything, then it means that the miner who is the most prolific in extracting MEV in blocks. Uh, is going to become the biggest mining pool. So wine mining pool, who's uh, way better than everyone else at doing sandwich attacks and back running and front running, uh, now can provide mining yields that are 30 times higher, 40 times higher. And we're talking about one of the most uh, uh, competitive, like it's even worse than in staking because in, in proof of work mining, everyone is always living on the edge, right? Everyone is sort of breaking even or dying. So you're going to have to join the most profitable mining pool. And if the most profitable mining pool is one that is very talented at extracting MEV, has the access to the best ser- uh, searchers and sort of can do multi-block MEV across many, many, many blocks, then you do get uh, a situation where hash rate sort of centralizes around a single mining pool and that's why you have to invent things like flashbots to make sure that any mining pool, whoever they are, have access to equally uh, powerful block creation strategies, so that it doesn't centralize. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying for sure 100 this is going to happen. I'm saying that the whole domain of problems that the Ethereum system has been fighting with for years, and Bitcoin has sort of been isolated from that. All of that crap is coming back into the Bitcoin system. And the Bitcoin, the current Bitcoin core developers, like sorry to say it, but they don't have any idea about how, how MEV works. Like they have some very primitive ideas, some primitive understandings of uh, how MEV behaves and operates. But it's like it's kindergarten time. It's amateur hour in Bitcoin compared to all the lessons <laughs> that you guys have learned in the Ethereum. Okay. Land. So that's, there's. That, OK, so that's it's very it's a very interesting perspective. One one also big difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum, of course, is the block time is very different, right? So Ethereum, it's very often that you're getting into latency wars on Ethereum just because every 12 seconds, uh, or at least, you know, in, in proof of work land, every 12 seconds with some obviously, you know, distribution of, of when blocks get mined, um, there's a race and you really want to get into this block and you really want to make sure you capture this particular piece of MEV when you see it. In Bitcoin with 10 minute blocks, there's just an ocean of time. It's just like you're sitting around, you know, things stuff is in the mempool. And you can, you know, you can do this stuff by hand and like, you know, literally write out exactly how you're going to front run stuff. And so I do think there's less of an, an advantage across mining pools just because of the latency difference uh, is going to be so small compared to somebody who's a much, you know, better wired up mining pool than somebody who isn't. At this, but you're, you're absolutely right. If searchers for whatever reason are choosing not to partner with everybody, like there, there will be, I think because of the fact that blockchains are so much longer on Bitcoin. My guess is that it would be pretty easy for searchers to just be like, cool, we'll just work with whoever. And, you know, uh, I, I don't think you would need 
in principle, a situation where one uh, mining pool just vastly outperforms its competition. Um, that doesn't seem likely to me. I don't know, Tom, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think general consensus is that actually like shorter block times basically create more MEV because there's like more opportunity for co-location and sort of private information. Whereas like, yeah, I mean, if you have 10 minute block times, then yeah, information should be public. And I think even in Ethereum, you know, pre-merge and pre-flash bots even, like it was not individual mining pools that were doing the extraction because they were, they were getting paid more by by searchers and there's sort of a gentleman's agreement not for like, mining pools to uh you know front run their their transactions i think you're missing one thing though which is the disaster for a bitcoin mining pool to so that what the one of the attacks that you can do in bitcoin mining is that you can do something like selfish mining so you find a block you don't release it to the rest of the network you start mining on your own block and then you release two blocks reorging out someone else's block uh, if they had found one before you because you have two blocks to attach to the side to the uh, main chain. If you are that other mining pool that found that block, and then two blocks now come in, kicking your block out, the amount of revenue that you lose from that from that event because you lost the block is like a huge deal. That's a disaster. Like that was the block that was going to pay for the next three days of like food for your family, and they threw it out. Yeah, I mean right? that's that's a function of, of fee volatility, though, right? And that's not that. I mean that that's going to be true regardless of whether ERC twenty, no. like even ordinals, create a lot of fee volatility. Right, um, but if you are on sort of in the in the mining pool that is engaging in selfish mining instead, and that's who you're splitting your revenue with, then it's going to be true even today. Yeah. That's true even without ordinals, right? It's always the case that selfish mining uh, at a certain threshold of of uh, hash rate, obviously, it's quite high. Uh, so yeah. you know, if you're like, I think below twenty five percent, it's not profitable to selfish mine. Yeah. Just intuitively, like these big variances uh, harmonize themselves out if you have very many blocks and very, a lot of different MEV situations. Like, oh, you lost some there, but you made some there. But if it's like mm. a couple of blocks that you mine in a span of a week, those blocks really, really matter. So so if MEV comes and fucks up uh, your block inclusion, that can be disastrous to your mining mining pool. So it's the, the stakes are higher when the blocks are slower, is sort of my argument, if that makes sense. Right. Okay, so I, I get I get the shape of your argument. It's very galaxy brain. Um, if you think that's the best counter argument to uh, what you guys are doing, well, here, here's here's what I'd say. Okay, so the most interesting thing to me about this whole debate is this is this the word spam because it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and we don't really examine it very closely of like what exactly does it mean to spam. Uh, we just kind of know it when we see it, right? It's kind of like porn. I think the the uh, maybe I should, I should explain that there's a famous uh, Supreme Judge, uh, Supreme Court judge who once said that uh, what's the definition of porn? He says, I know when I see it. I can't remember who, who it was who said this. Um, but I feel like that's kind of the way most people think about spam is that spam is like, well, obviously it's spam. Like what a Bitcoin SD weather. So of course it's spam. Exactly, exactly. It raises kind of a philosophical question of like, what exactly is spam? If spam is paying fees, what makes something spam and not spam? Is it is it purely in the eye of, be- of the beholder or is it? Is, is there really some way to, you know, Eric, is there something that could go on the Bitcoin blockchain that you would say, okay, yeah, you know, Ordinals is legit, uh, Wizards are legit, BRC20 is like, okay, kind of stupid, but whatever. But that thing is spam. That thing shouldn't be there. Um, Do you think there is such a thing as spam on the Bitcoin blockchain if it's paying fees? <laughs> it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting uh, question. And I have sympathy for both sides. I have sympathy for those that are saying that you know, uh, arbitrary data, as long as it pays for the fees, that's the what the market decides is the most relevant piece of information to put into Bitcoin. 
uh, if you want to compete with uh, that transaction, then you have to find a more valuable use case for uh, your application that competes that other transaction out. That's one way to look at it. But I can also understand people who feel like there are a bunch of different use cases for sort of chronologic data ordering that can be valuable. But the system that I'm building here has to do with censorship-resistant money transfer. And the the most censorship-resistant money transfer that I can think of are just normal Bitcoin transactions that actually transfer Bitcoin value and doesn't have to do with like shitcoin auctions or anything like that. So I understand people who feel... Uh, the, the you know who feel um, either way actually the reason that I'm sort of on the side of the ordinals camp here and sort of so I'm an accelerationist I believe that if there is an issue with the protocol let's fuck around with it as much as we possibly can so that there has to be a counteraction like let's have this debate now let's not wait uh, let the let the protocol ossify even more and then have a situation that we can't even reach consensus on how to handle so like we're we in the crypto industry, we believe that we're always like three years away from mass adoption, right? Um, and so, if if that's like around the corner, uh, and that this taproot upgrade made it very easy to to productize the block space and insert arbitrary meta layer protocols, let me fuck around with that arbitrary data as much as humanly possible, so that all the different attacks and 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 issues can sort of arise, and we can have that conversation early on, and then decide how do we actually want to treat this issue. So I think that, you know, maybe, you know, I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm very split here because I think on the one hand, I do think that one of the biggest problems that Bitcoin has is that there's not enough demand for its block space and we need this security budget problem solved. On the other hand, I am kind of low-key worried about bringing in the entire domain of Ethereum problems into Bitcoin when people find out that they can use this arbitrary data space to build any type of meta-layer protocol. So... Uh, things are, I think this is one of the biggest like crises for the Bitcoin system that it's ever been in, but I don't think that people realize it yet. Um, because B- Bitcoiners are going to have to come up with an understanding for how to, uh, strategize around MEV. And we're just so far behind. We are so far, be- far behind that even like a, an average Ethereum researcher can come in and become like, you know, the, the best possible, like the, you know, can control the entire dialogue and be like, no, because you, you have people like like um, Matt Corallo who's going in. Like I saw him when, so I was I was in Tel Aviv uh, at the Stark Starkware sessions, and I was talking about how you can build a sovereign rollup on top of Bitcoin now uh, using Bitcoin as data availability layer by using inscriptions as just sort of the mechanism to dump in these uh, the the, the, the uh, data that you want for your rollup, and. Very quickly after that, Rollkit from the Celestia team built actually a module that leveraged that. And now you can build, using Rollkit, you can build a sovereign rollup on top of Bitcoin. And Matt Corallo sort of jumped into their GitHub repository and said like, hmm, this actually, there's a risk that MEV is created here. Could you perhaps... Uh, randomize the order in which you in which you roll up interp like regardless of how they're ordering the blockchain could you just randomize in your client how they, these uh, transactions are interpreted I was like holy shit Matt you solved MEV with like one idea let's just randomize the order that we look at transactions why didn't the entire Ethereum community just think about just looking at the transaction ordering randomly so 
Bitcoin, Bitcoiners and the Bitcoin, Bitcoin core developers don't have the faintest clue about what to do about MEV. So if this thing like blows up and becomes a problem, you know, I think that, you know, Bitcoin core as an organization is going to have to restructure itself. Uh, either they're going to have to learn really, really fast, which I don't think they can, or they're sort of going to have to uh, be joined by people who do have expertise and in MEV and the top experts come from sort of the rest of the Ethereum world. And then these two words merges with each other. And I think that one of the other things that we've sort of seen here is that now that we have sort of spammed the blockchain with all this ordinals data, we have seen that the Bitcoin layer two protocols are sort of collapsing because apparently, so this is one of the other things that Ethereum people have figured out in a high fee environment, uh, state uh, channel based uh, systems aren't really that great at solving the situation because if the fees are very high and you need to create a state channel, then making the state channel is very expensive. So like managing channels on a very volatile fee network is difficult. And I had like multiple Lightning net, uh, develop, wallet developers that are like, actually Lightning uh, ceases to function in a high fee environment because the channels that we have, all the all the payments that we are making, all these micropayments that we are making, if the fee to settle those transactions on the mainnet are, are higher than what the payments inside the channels are, it means that there's no incentive to settle to the mainnet, which means that we're basically treating, we're basically sending around credit in our second layers. And this is something that anyone that was working on state channels in Ethereum realized that, oh, you know, we have a volatile, uh, volatile fees in our chain on the base layer. State channels is not a great idea. Let's not do that. So that's something that Bitcoiners are realizing now. So I think that we're going to have to build other layer two solutions on top of Bitcoin too. And how are we going to scale those? So if, if we start actually building rollups inside of Bitcoin, how are we going to scale those? Well, we're probably want to do something like proto-dag sharding. So we're probably going to want ephemeral data blobs uh, that <laughs> that we have. So what what is happening now? <laughs> Eric, I feel like you're writing a Bitcoin meets Ethereum fanfic right now. Like this is, I feel like this is going really, really deep in an area that seems very unlikely to happen. If not, I mean, not because uh, I don't think the problems okay, you're well, describing are real. Like you're, you're describing basically, look, like there's going to be a convergence between Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the Ethereum problems are going to become Bitcoin problems. They just don't know it yet. And they're going to have to like call all the Ethereum experts to come in and like save their old broken, broken blockchain and go through all the growing pains that Ethereum has gone through. I, I, I appreciate the story. Let me pause you there. So one, you didn't actually answer the question, I think. What is a spam transaction? I think you're mostly just going off about how Ethereum is, is like the future of Bitcoin. But, but I, I want to stop you there because we also, we, we, want, we want to give some time to talk about the ledger hack. But there's one thing that you said that really brought to bear this one uh, idea that I've had for a long time. Uh, and I want to get your reaction to it. So, so the first such a caveat, like I'm so far away from everything that you described. Like I don't really follow the Bitcoin world very closely. Uh, you know, like I, I think Dick Carter talked about this, like as an investor, there's just not that many investable things on top of Bitcoin. I mean, ordinals is kind of breathes a lot of new life into it recently, but historically, like there just aren't that many things that are Bitcoin only to invest into. Um, and then as far as NFTs, like I've never been much of a collector of anything much less, you know, not, not art, not whatever, not NFTs. But the interesting thing is that, you know, there's, there seems to be this big conflict now between people who are pro ordinals and pro innovation, pro things changing on Bitcoin and pro, you know, as you mentioned, sort of flippancy and levity and like, hey, let's like have fun. Uh, and the, the sort of old guard, right? The Bitcoin maxis were like, this is all stupid. You guys are spamming the network. This is a waste of time. Like, screw, screw you, screw you kids. I feel like the question is like, why, why are they doing that? And like, what, is the, what is the why behind the why? 
Uh, there's the why of like what they say on Twitter. And then there's the why underneath the why. Uh, and like, why do they also, you know, only eat meat and own guns and, you know, deny the efficacy of vaccines or whatever. Um, I, I don't know that I have a full theory of why that is all true, but I, I was actually, um, I, I once took a, a, a class on the sociology of religion, or I guess, yeah, the sociology of religion. And one thing they talk about is how um, in early religions, right? Yeah, if, you, if you think about Christianity as an example, Christianity was a messianic religion. And so there was this belief that the world was going to end very soon uh, at, at the very beginning of Christianity, right? So the people who came immediately after Jesus, Jesus said, basically, the world's going to end. So, you know, leave your job, just come follow me, like, let's do stuff. And everybody was very convinced that the world was going to end. Um, and the ethic that Jesus preached, and this is true for many religions, right? The ethics that is originally preached by the founder is very restrictive. It's very, very difficult for normal people to follow that kind of life unless the world is literally about to end, right? If the world is literally about to end and you're like, okay, sure, fine, I'll leave my cars, I'll leave my stuff, I'll just go on the road and I'll, you know, follow the, the life of, of saintliness. But as generations pass, people realize like, wow, that's really hard to live that way. Like, it, it's kind of not really doable. And so the, the compromise that religions come to is they basically create monasteries and they have people like monks and nuns who are kind of separate from society and they sort of live out the religious ethic in a way that's unrealistic for everybody else to. But because we have it there, because there's some people somewhere who are doing it, we're all kind of free to live a more, you know, loose existence that, that can still coincide. We can sort of look at the values that are encapsulated by them and say, ah, oh, yeah, you know, we, we could be Bitcoin maxis too. We could like totally say that we'll never use any other chain than Bitcoin. Everything else is a shit coin. All, you know, I, I'm, I insist on all my savings being in Bitcoin at all times. And maybe like there's some other weird stuff that just gets stuck on there, like, you know, carnivorism and other shit like that. But the main thing is that like Bitcoin only, Bitcoin forever. Um, and if you believe that like that religious uh, end of the world thing is kind of like hyper Bitcoinization, right? It's like the moment that Bitcoin takes over everything and we all just, you know, everything collapses into a black hole of Bitcoin. Um, and the fact that there are some people doing that is what gives the religious, I guess I would say permission to everybody else to continue operating in the religion, even though they don't embody the full ethic of Bitcoin. That's my argument. What do you think of that argument? I think that there's definitely like an element of eschatologicism. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but you, when you believe that there's, if you just follow the Bitcoin virtues correctly, it doesn't matter what happens now, as long as there's this end state where you become rich and everyone who shitcoined lose all their money. Um, so if that's sort of your worldview, um, then you can do a bunch of different insane things as long as you believe that if you just like salvation, the, the, you know, the, the Armageddon is coming and I just got to live my life this way and then I'll be saved. Like it is, it, it does very, has very strong resemblance to religion. Um, but what I do think, I, I think that the confinements and the restrictions also shapes the religion. So, you know, I'm when I'm studying sort of the hex cult, uh, you know, things are, and then you have to spin narratives around why are the things the way that they are and why is that great? Why is it so? For example, in hex in the hex system, Richard Hart owns ninety percent of the supply, but this is actually great because that's so bad that it scares out all the VCs. What is, what even is hex? Because I think oh, people have never heard of hex. Oh, um, <laughs> Very briefly, one sentence. One sentence. Uh, it's like one of those food Ponzi tokens uh, where you stake your Ponzi fo food token and then you get more of the token. 
But somehow uh, this is like a huge financial, in the Hex world, this is like the greatest financial innovation uh, of all time. And Richard Hart is a genius. And uh, so, so so that's sort of okay, the, their religion. Like that, supply. Yeah. Uh, but for, yes. uh, so, so they have a lot of stories around how owning 90, like the, ben, the benevolent dictator is better than a democracy and uh, scaring away people who don't trust in the religion by having these things like 90% of the supply is owned by a, uh, uh, like it's almost like a Nigeria letter. It filters for the for specific people that that, <laughs> that, that, get, in, that get in there. So it creates it creates a community where there's extreme MEV and like you know there's there are people doing a lot of. Um, I think one of the reasons that like Pulse Chain, who's, which is now like a fork of Ethereum, where all these uh, hexagons have gone to live. Uh, the reason that people are really building for that is because they have a community that don't really follow sort of the. The, the logical laws or mathematical laws when they're thinking about valuations of things. So, um, so when I'm looking at the hex community, you know, they have weird things going on there, and then people have to come up with sort of religious uh, narratives around why this is actually good and why the other people are doing it wrong. And I think that Bitcoin has sort of been in the same way that because we can't do smart contracts, smart contracts are evil, and the only way to build a good system is by doing it the way Bitcoin is doing it. But if Bitcoin had, like the moment that Taproot was supposed to make DeFi possible, then everyone was like, we're getting DeFi and Bitcoin, fuck Ethereum, like, uh, Bitcoin is taking over. So like the, the moment something changes with like uh, what you can do, the, then the religion and the narratives also change. So I think that the religion is sort of um, derived from the, restric- the restrictions, if that makes sense. So the Bitcoin culture is the way it is because of uh, how the protocol ossified very early on. Uh, I just don't really care what's going on in Bitcoin, if I'm being totally honest. Like, you know, it's like I've, you know, been in space a while and I've similarly seen a lot of promises and a lot of hype and just like nothing has really manifested um, other than like number go up, which seems to be kind of the only thing. Um, Like I've also been trying to get like lightning data and it's like, okay, like the usage stuff is really weak. Even like ordinals, I think is like kind of interesting, but like you said, it's like, it started up being like JPEGs, right? Or not even JPEGs, just encoding some images. And now, and now it's like, you know, sort of shit coins. And so it's like, you, you know, what is sort of the, the story here? People really want to trade shit coins, but like they don't trust ETH as like a, you know, base settlement layer because it's not like pure, like, come on. Um, so I, I just, you know, I've been tired, tired of kind of waiting for a Godot here. And, uh, like you said, in the, in the interim, like these other chains have kind of just uh, surpassed it in terms of usability and tech and applications and whatnot. Sorry. Robert, what's your take on this? No, I mean, Tom, so Tom's a naysayer. Tom doesn't give a shit about Bitcoin. Robert, what's your take on this whole drama? So my take is, and this is going back to the spam argument, there's no such thing as spam. Whatever transaction is willing to pay the most to miners is the right transaction. And you know, I don't think a picture, no offense, of a monkey or whatever is like necessarily the highest value content and data that you can be adding to the chain. But I think that the ability to add actual like images and content directly into this immutable forever record for all of humanity is actually incredibly valuable. You know, I don't think, you know, necessarily, you know, a picture of an ape is a good idea. But what if it's the next WikiLeaks like, you know, important geopolitical document, right? That could be important for recording in the history of humanity forever or something like that. Like, I don't know what the right content is, but I don't think it's a bad thing, you know, that people are 
putting whatever images and funky content they want. You know, when it comes to being able to script, you know, higher level things like shit coins, I don't think that's bad at either, right? Like I see it as good for Bitcoin because if that's what's willing to create the most transaction fee, you know, everyone should theoretically be happy. You know, I don't really think it actually eats into the core argument for Bitcoin that like Bitcoin itself is the only, you know, application. And like the whole point of it is this like, I think if you want the Bitcoin blockchain to win, you actually want people to use it to its maximum degree. So, and I say this is not a maximalist of any asset, <laughs> but, you know, I, and maybe it's naive, but I see this as a good thing. Like all of this is being good for Bitcoin, like period, full stop. I don't see it being bad. I see it just being more demand to use an L1 that most people didn't really want to use all of, you know, a couple months ago. That should be on its face, just awesome. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with the sentiment, Robert. I think I, I, I actually, the, the spam question, I, I don't actually have a very well-defined answer to it. It's maybe something I should think about more because um, it does feel like there is such a thing as spam. Like spam does seem like a coherent concept. So to say that there is no such thing as a fee paying, like something that, that clears the, the, the market for fees can by definition never be spam. That feels wrong to me, but I don't know that I have a good way to describe spam. Uh, well, it could be like advertising. Right. Okay. So like, you know, spam in my mind is because it's basically free and there's no transactional costs. So my inbox fills up with like nonstop garbage and nonsense because there's no transaction cost market to regulate it. Right. But if there was essentially a fee market that like regulates this and says only the highest paying thing can reach, you know, the public, right. Maybe that looks like advertising, not spam, right. In a sense, but it's, you know, whoever's willing to pay the most to get their data out there. And yes, that could be an advertisement in some sense, but I don't think it's spam. I can say one little thing that can maybe impact your, your opinion on, on, on the whole thing. Um, so first of all, in Bitcoin, we have the block size limit, right? So yeah, you can spam the chain, but the, uh, how, uh, how, how the resource requirements are to run a node doesn't change, right? Because that's the, Block size limits make sure that you're only storing the decided upon amount of data on each node per 10 minutes, right? Then the, the other interesting thing is that the more of that data is filled with JPEG information, which you don't even have, there are no signature uh, checks or like computation that has, been, has, to, has to be done on that data. The higher of the percentage that is just dummy raw data blobs, the easier it is to verify that block. So the more spam, the more percentage of the block that contains spam versus hard to verify, or signatures and all that, the easier it is to sync the chain. So I'm not aware of that many systems that the more you spam them, the more efficient they get. And actually also, if you run a full node, you can prune all of that data after you download it on your node and check sort of that the Merkle tree computations work out. So your node actually can become way leaner from the spam. So it pays more in revenue and then... No, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Eric, I mean, one of the arguments that people make against this is the fact that it increases the unspent um, UTXO set because, of course, these inscriptions, they like, happen on a single sat. You take that sat off, you, you do something to it, and you probably are never going to join it back together with anything. Um, so it does... It, yes, in one sense. No, in another sense, if you're looking at the state size, the state size increases. But if you look at the actual computation cost... In a particular block, yeah, that decreases. Um, but one of them is forever, and one of them. It depends on how you use it. So the 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 big the big four megabyte bold wizard that we made, that's one UTXO, an entire block. That's tiny. 
but oh, if you okay, yeah, fair. So, so that that is way less you yeah, text yeah. okay okay let's, let's 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 um let, let, let's cut this line of conversation but this has been this has been fascinating i just uh, let me let me end with this note it does feel to me like the concept of spam is a real one right there, there probably should be such a thing as spam like if north korea was filling every block on bitcoin with just like death to america um i'd be like okay that seems like spam you know even if they're paying fees I feel like North Korea is spamming Bitcoin right now. Um, and that feels right. I feel like I'm describing something real. If it's people on Bitcoin who are having fun and they're, you know, doing JPEG parties, like that doesn't feel like spam to me, but I can understand why it would feel like spam to somebody maybe, you know, older and kind of more set in their ways than I am. Um, so I, I, I think there is some eye of the beholder of what is spam and what is not spam, what is socially valuable and what is just, you know, somebody being an asshole. Um, but it, it it does seem I, I I had not thought about this idea that you that you mentioned Eric about there's going to be convergence between Bitcoin and Ethereum because of all the MEV that gets created if BRC twenties do go big and we start adding more and more things to them beyond just transfers because of course if it's just transfers then there's no real MEV right that's it's going to be uh, pretty vanilla the same way as Bitcoin is today uh, but if there's more complex stuff happening on chain and there's uh, uh, you know you create AMMs which there's no reason you can't it's a state machine just like Ethereum uh, then uh, you're going to get a bunch of annoying nonsense uh, happening on on Bitcoin, same way you happen on Ethereum with respect to EV. Okay, we're 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 running up on time. I want to I want to talk about one other big story that Eric, I would love to also get your take on. So uh, this week, there's been this huge debacle by the company Ledger. So Ledger, they are the biggest hardware, uh, the biggest hardware wallet manufacturer in the world. Hardware wallet, basically, you know, a physical device, very small carry with you and you can store your private keys on there and use it to sign transactions uh, without having your private key directly exposed to the internet. Now, on Tuesday, they announced a new feature, which is a subscription service for users who want to have their private key be recovered by third parties. So basically, they had three third parties that signed up to uh, split your key into three shards. And uh, if you, you had to KYC with Ledger themselves in order to use the service, prove you are who you say they are, and then uh, you can get two of the three shards back together, uh, recover it using your passphrase, uh, which I think is like your eight-digit code. And then you can unlock your own, uh, you, can, you can get back your ledger even if you lose your physical device or something happens to it. Uh, and so this feature, uh, which was upgraded in the firmware, so the firmware itself uh, would allow you to uh, encrypt, your, uh, encrypt your private key and then send it over the internet to these three parties and do the splitting and all the stuff directly within the firmware of your device. Um, this freaked a bunch of people out for a few reasons. One uh, is that most people did not even know that it was possible for a ledger to spit out the private key at all. They thought that, okay, well, ledger, it's like, you know, kind of like a secure enclave, like on, on the Apple device, and the keys go in and they can never come out. That's what most people thought was the way it worked. Turns out that's not the way it works. Um, and second is just the, the optics around this whole thing of, okay, self-custody, but then, you know, KYC with the company that sells you your wallet, and then they will make sure that, you know, you really are who you say you are when somebody asks for your, your key shares back. Um, that seems like kind of a crazy security model and kind of against the spirit of self-custody, let's say. Uh, and so a bunch of people freaked out and got very, very upset. And this caused a huge stampede of people saying that, oh my God, Ledger is terrible, Ledger is evil. Um, and they've totally broken the security model for hardware wallets and people are like, I'll never trust Ledger ever again. So we, we actually had a big debate about this yesterday between Tom and myself, uh, where I thought that this was terrible. I thought like, oh my God, and not because Ledger offered this feature. I actually don't care about this feature. I'm like, I, I think it's fine if Ledger wants to offer this. 
you know, unsophisticated people will say like, hey, this is this is great. And for all I know, it'll probably save people from losing their key material. But I don't think anybody sophisticated is going to use this for obvious reasons. The thing I was, I was freaked out about was that, what the hell? I thought that a, a ledger could only basically write to transactions, right? It could sign transactions, that's it. Basically, like it's a signing oracle. And in reality, it can actually spit out the key. And if you know that the trust model or the, the, the threat model for your hardware wallet is that it can spit out the entire key, then a lot of things that would otherwise be mitigations don't, don't work, right? So uh, things like a time lock. If somebody can, can steal your key out of a hardware wallet, then a time lock doesn't save you. Or, you know, spending limits don't save you. Like all the stuff that you can do to mitigate transaction level maliciousness can't save you if the key can get exfiltrated. And so I was like, this is terrible. And Tom, just, just so I, I don't speak on your behalf, what was your take at the time when you were reading this of like, why you don't think this is a big deal? I think it really just comes down to like what your previous mental model was of how this was supposed to work. And I think obviously there's, you know, people have sort of different standards. Um, in, in my mind, um, you know, obviously if it's sort of like getting physical access to a device um, and in this scenario it would be busy upgrading the firmware on the ledger. It's like if, if that happens, then like that is sort of beyond the level of protection that you can provide through your design. And so for ledger, um, you know, they sort of have a it, it has to there is a piece of hardware that will only allow firmware upgrades to ledger that's been signed by the ledger corporation. So there's not even really a chance that like you can accidentally download malicious firmware off the Internet and you have to approve it on your device. And so you can literally only add firmware to your ledger that ledger has approved that you opt into. Um, but once you do that, like, of, of course, they can kind of, they have to upgrade, you know, the HSM over time, right? They have to add new types of uh, cryptography, new signature schemes as they add new chains. And so it can't sort of be fixed in place. You could obviously build a um, ship that only does that, but then it's very kind of limited in what it can do. And so it, it's kind of this, this trade-off, right, between like, you know, UX and upgradability and sort of how ironclad and resistant do you want? But I mean, to your point, Hasib, like that was just my mental model, but I think a lot of people on on Twitter had sort of your mental model. And so I think this was kind of like everyone was feeling it was like diving into like uh, um, chip design schemes for Ledger and different hardware wallets and like trying to understand how everything <laughs> works. And uh, it was a very funny uh, uh, 24 hours. But I overall agree with the point, which is like this should not have been done through a former upgrade. It's terrifying that this is actually being released and like this API is being has been built effectively. Um, if they want to offer this service, fine, but like you know, do it through an alternate uh, uh, channel. Yeah, it seemed like a pure disaster. Like regardless of whether it is justified or not justified, like clearly they have freaked out. Their yeah, it seemed like a pure disaster. Like regardless of whether it is justified or not justified, like clearly they have freaked out their core community, which is you know people who are rightfully paranoid about their keys leaving their device. Uh, Robert, what was your take on this whole thing? Yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, Ledger should have rolled this out differently or should have built this product differently. You know, I think the core challenge for them is that there's 8 billion people on Earth and a small sliver of that, I think, are up to the task of private key self-custody without, you know, hosted backups in some sense. You know, their target market is not 8 billion people right now with the prior product suite. And so I think it makes sense that they want to go in the direction of your keys, but in a more whole world friendly security model, right? I think it's a very different product. And I think that the sliver that uses Ledger today is much more crypto sophisticated. And the idea that the private key can even leave the device through 
you know, a, uh, you know, a firmware update is terrifying because the whole reason they're even buying a ledger in the first place is so that the key can never leave the device period. And that's the expectation of that customer base. So I absolutely think they should build this product. And I think it should have been a separate product from their existing devices. And I think if they want to go in that direction, they should, but I don't think it should have been one in which they were basically rolling out through a firmware upgrade for customers who don't want this. Eric, what was your take on this whole debacle? Yeah, so I've spent most of the weekend actually making wizard costumes for the Miami party. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I, Is this I the first up, time you're hearing about this? So I caught up on it last night, and the thing that you know strikes me the most is that i actually have like tweets on my phone where ledger the main ledger twitter account says that no firmware upgrade can make your key uh leave the device so that they said that in 2018 they explicitly said that no firmware uh upgrade can make the so the a big part of the reason that why people believe that is because Ledger explicitly said that. They said that that's how their technology worked. And now they said, well, but if we upgrade the device and we want your key to leave the device, then it's a different story. But you trust us, right? So it's more than a disaster. It's outright deceit. They fucked up big time. And of course, people are going to be mad about, uh, mad about this. Uh, there are some people that have like deeper insights about how secure enclaves on HSMs work that aren't as surprised. Um but there's certainly a lot of people that have all the right to be extremely frustrated because the people making those devices said that the, the private keys could not be the, any, despite what, because it feels like you get a call from like a ledger representative speaking in some weird accent and they tell you, oh, it's because you haven't uh, upgraded the firmware on your device. And then all of a sudden, shoop, your private keys is gone. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing there? That was French. That sounded very French. That sounded very French. Okay, so I, I, I spent a lot of time on this yesterday evening uh, because I was just trying to get my head around this and we we're trying to figure out, like, should we be telling our portfolio companies to stop using letters? And uh, my first reaction was like, yeah, obviously, like, this is, such a, this is such an egregious breach of user trust. Like, oh my God, I can't believe they did this. The more time that I spent on it and the more that I talked to people who know a lot more about this than I do, the more I just, I, I, I came to believe that I just overreacted in the same way that I mean, almost everybody on Twitter overreacted. For, for a few reasons. So I, I also saw the tweet because it's been going around everywhere of like some screenshot of Ledger support uh, or whatever, the social media channel. Like, so it's not actually like Ledger copy, right? Not not their actual marketing. Go to their website. It doesn't say anywhere that like it's impossible to exfiltrate your private key. There was one tweet they did in 2022 that everybody's screen capping everywhere that says, you know, it, it's impossible for fir- the firmware does not allow your uh, uh, keys to leave your device. The correct answer is that uh, the only way that firmware can cause the key to leave your device is if you install it and Ledger signs it, which presumably Ledger was like sort of implying, like, look, we would not sign such software, so obviously it can't run on your, on your firmware because it's not signed by us, and the secure element enforces that the code is signed by our key. Um, yeah. So that but would have been a more be infiltrated, right? Answer. Ledger can be of course, infiltrated. Of yes, so, and, so if they're infiltrated and you install it, then yes, you can sort of get fished by somebody pretending to be Ledger who steals their keys. Uh, that's totally possible, right? And that's in the trust model of pretty much all trusted hardware. I was spending a lot of time looking on this, uh, looking at this, and like basically all trusted hardware everywhere, whether it's TEs, whether it's um, you know the secure enclave, it's everything. All of them are upgradable. There's basically nothing, or almost nothing, that is not upgradable in some way. And what is the upgrade process? The upgrade process is that the microcode or 
the whatever it is that's running in that uh, processor is signed by the manufacturer, right? That's true for almost every single form of, of trusted hardware. Um, and so you may not uh, have access to it yourself. It may be like Intel that can, you know, push upgrades to your SGX or whatever, or with some other manufacturer that can actually push upgrades. But of course, all software has bugs. All software everywhere forever since the beginning of time has bugs. And so just on the most basic level, um, you always need some upgradability to some, to, to, to some software running somewhere uh, because, you know, OpenSSL has been broken. Lots and lots of stuff that's been around since forever has been broken. Um, there are sometimes, you know, some things that use like SHA-1 and SHA-1 is like basically broken at this point, right? And so, okay, we had to go in and, and in the software layer, we had to change the hashing algorithm because the hashing algorithm is broken. All this sort of stuff that just leads you to the fact that upgradability is essential generally for security, but more specifically for blockchains. And this was the thing that I, that I realized after, uh, again, chatting with people who are much smarter than me. It is basically, if, if you had a situation where a ledger was the way I was imagining it, the way I was imagining a ledger is that it's a box that you put your private key into, and that box uh, has a bunch of algorithms already in there that are all the algorithms you would ever need to interact with your key. Um, and uh, that's it. You never put anything more in the box. The box is, comes with fixed functionality of signatures, and that's it. You, there's no way to read out the private key or to put a new private key in there. That can't be true. Because if that were true, then it would be impossible to support any new upgrades to a protocol that involved any changing in the way that signing is done. Uh, you could not support any new blockchains that you didn't have the algorithms already in there from inception. So you couldn't support Near, you couldn't support Cosmos, you couldn't support you know uh, Solana, anything that has a different signing algorithm. Tough shit. You know, you go throw this away, buy a new ledger, buy the ledger that supports near, buy the ledger that supports. This actually sounds like a great business model Uh, that, you know, the reality is that like consumers would fucking hate this, right? Like they want one thing, one key, every blockchain. And the only way that you can do that, if you're not throwing away your ledger, every time a new blockchain comes live or there's some change in the way that the signing algorithm works, then the only way that's possible is if there's some way to modify the box. And so it's always been true. For every, basically every hardware wallet, that there is some way to modify the box that the private key sits in. And the security model is that the, the, the modifications to the box have to be signed by the manufacturer, right? Or you have to sideload it, which is, you, you, can, you can also sideload things into a ledger that do extract your private key. Uh, but you're, you're really, you know, most users are never going to do that, and it's very difficult. Um, so if you understand that that's true, and you've ever used any other, you know, signing algorithm with your ledger, then you were trusting, because the moment that you do that other signing algorithm, you have to derive another key that touches the master key. And then when you derive that key, that app touches the derived key and does all sorts of other stuff with it. And one of the things it could do is it could just spit it out. You, you, you can do that because you're specifying the signing algorithm in code. Um, so that's what made me change my mind. Sorry, Tom. Uh, the other issue that you brought up too, which I agree with, is like, you know, we only know this... Um, was going to be added because they, they told us, um, but Ledger firmware is not open source. And so it's very plausible that they add this or something worse in a future upgrade. And like, yeah, the firmware is legit and it's signed by Ledger, but like, you don't actually know what is all in the firmware. And so either our you know, hardware wallets like Trezor that do have open source form firmware. So we, we know what's in it. You can verify that the firmware that you're loading matches the source, but like, you just can't do that with Ledger right now. Yeah, I agree. That does seem like the best path forward to ameliorate a lot of the concerns that people have is the ability for the, the firmware upgrades themselves to be open source. It's already the case, by the way, that most, uh, not, I don't know of most, many of the applications for Ledger, like when you install, you know, the Solana 
widget on on uh, Ledger. That is open source. You can go and see the code that they wrote for Ledger and the API is public. But uh, it's not the case for the firmware itself. And I was reading somewhere that there may be like NDA restrictions. So like because of, um, because, you know, your, your hardware is like full of NDAs. Like NDAs is just freaking everywhere in, in the hardware supply chain. And so there's like, uh, what I read somewhere was somebody, I don't know if it's speculation or confirmed, that there's some NDA that they have somewhere that like kind of infected their code base that makes it difficult for them to actually open source the, uh, the firmware, which is easier if you're Trezor because Trezor uses all open source stuff. Um, same thing with OneKey, which is a Dragonfly portfolio company. They are also built on top of the Trezor stack so that everything is open source. That makes it really easy. Um, but, you know, pretty much all the secure stuff, right? Like, not, sorry, I don't mean as in not using the secure stuff as in secure, but like if you want to use like a secure element or secure enclave or anything like that, all these things are closed source. There's not a single open source version of them as far as I know that's been commercialized. Um, and it's kind of the security model is that there's some physically unforgeable function on the device and it, it hosts some key that is owned by the manufacturer that you know corresponds to the manufacturer and the manufacturer signs uh, any microcode changes and that's how it works. And that's the only way that the thing remains secure in perpetuity, as far as I understand. Eric, what's your what's your what's your what's your take on on um, on this back and forth? Uh, I think that we gotta learn how to do like a elliptic curve mathematics uh, with pen and paper. Uh, that seems like to be, to, be, <laughs> to be the only way that we can be <laughs> self-sovereign. That's the true Bitcoin spirit. There yeah. we go. We needed we needed some Bitcoin maximalism to come back. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have anything else. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Wait, so Eric, so are are you a reformed Bitcoin maxi, or are you still a Bitcoin maxi somewhere deep in your heart, or like how do you how do you describe yourself with respect to your relationship with maximalism? I, maybe it's more like you're starting a new sect of the religion, and yeah. that's kind of what's animating so much of the excitement around it. Yeah, no. So um, uh, the ironic thing is that I really did appreciate that Bitcoin and Ethereum were two very separate things. Like I used to describe it as so the like. Ethereum is the octopus and Bitcoin is like a revolver with one bullet in it. And depending on which enemy you're going to fight, like maybe <laughs> your enemy is one who's scared of octopuses or like you're fighting him underwater, then you want the octopus. The revolver won't work there. Uh, but in other situations, like the, the, the octopus isn't going to help you and you, just, you need to shoot the guy. So I, And I think that the enemy is the state, right? And I want both an octopus and the gun to shoot uh, the state and throw the octopus at. Um, and so depending on where I'm fighting them and which situation it is, I really want both of those sort of weapons at my disposal. And uh, so I, that's why I've been like, you know, if, if the state says uh, that, you know, uh, everything in Ethereum are securities and um, OFAC regulation uh, becomes a problem for like MEV for, for, uh, transaction creation, like if, if those are sort of the how they try to bring down the, the Ethereum system, then Bitcoin is less affected, right? But if what they're doing is saying that oh, Bitcoin is an, an, an uh, unenvironmentally friendly, it's consuming too much energy, and we don't like Bitcoin for this reason, then you say, well, we have the octopus here. It's not un environmentally unfriendly. Like, what are you going <laughs> to... So I think that we we want... I mean, the, the end goal is to uh, create a sovereign... Uh, uh, non-sovereign form of money, basically, uh, that the state can't control. I think that the main goal is still to like create a system uh, of money that is wrangled out of the hands of the government. Uh, if that can be a financial system too, that can do stuff like DeFi, that's great. But at the end, I just want one system that the state can't control. Therefore, I need Bitcoin and Ethereum to be sort of different uh, beasts 
Um, so I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist, but I do appreciate uh, certain aspects of Bitcoin. I like, for example, that you know Bitcoiners care extremely much about being able to verify the supply on their nodes and being able to run their nodes in Raspberry Pis. And the Ethereum community is more like, oh, we want a security budget and we want uh, decentralized exchanges and non-custodial ways to... Uh, have good user experience for swapping around those assets. That's also important. I think both uh, projects are working on really important things. And uh, so I want both of them to sort of survive. And I'm a big champion for both of them. Uh, this is why the, when I when you ask me to sort of steel man my argument against, against ordinals is, is that they're sort of converging towards each other. Each other. That's what, what my worry is. And yes, it's true that maybe I'm like a futurist and I'm maybe painting demons in the future that aren't really here yet. Uh, but we can see like Bitcoin is dramatically changing. Like we had a shitcoin auction that made the fees uh, uh, go up so high uh, from one Satoshi per V-byte to 600 Satoshi per V-byte because we were basically running a gas auction for uh, getting access to uh, an airdrop basically of a shitcoin. Uh, we haven't had, so that's like, that was like an other side mint uh, style event that was happening on Bitcoin now. That is like inherently an, a more EVM uh, type of problem. And I think that we are just seeing the, the beginning of that. And uh, that's scary. Uh, I mean, there are reasons to be optimistic. Like one, one of the great things is that I'm also seeing people price things in Bitcoin for the first time in ages. Like you have uh, NFTs that are getting pri- priced in a, like how many Bitcoins is, is it worth? So you, Bitcoin is sort of coming back as a unit of account in the same way that Ethereum has been a unit of account for NFTs there. So there are both good and bad sides to all this. Uh, I'm just trying to stay on top of things and I'm trying to accelerate all, all the things so that we can get to sort of a conclusion of what we should do with them. Well, much respect for you for that, Eric. You're always a, a beacon of light in this world of, uh, this world of darkness that, that is, well, that is sometimes the Bitcoin community. I'm glad to hear that you have such love for octopus, octopuses and guns. I don't, I didn't totally understand the analogy, but I, I hope that it, I hope that it takes off. Uh, anyway, we got to wrap. We're up on time, Eric. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. All right. Until next week. Thanks, Eric. See y'all. Mm-hmm.